Good morning. Well, as you know, we are in John chapter 8. This is a long, basically a long conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And, you know, it, it pains me to break it up uh, in segments. So I hope everybody ate a big breakfast this morning. We're going we're gonna to shut down at about 3 o'clock this afternoon. We're going to just <laughs> muscle through. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, that's just the way it is. We're going we're gonna to take it in, uh, in bite sizes as we go through uh, Jesus' conversation with the religious leaders here in John chapter 8. Last time, we ended with Jesus' words to new converts, to new believers, because, forgive me for using this expression, Jesus can, can chew gum and walk at the same time, times a gajillion. He's in the conversation with the religious leaders who hate him, and so he's responding to in this kind of this kind of machine gun response. They they accuse him and he responds, and they accuse him and he responds, and he teaches and he teaches and he teaches to the hostile, to the antagonistic religious leaders. And in the midst of that, he saves those who are in the audience who don't fall into that category of hostility towards him. And so what we saw last time is that he was addressing these new converts. And you see in chapter 8, verse 30, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, in other words, who had believed him, these are the believers, he says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Jesus is saying believers are to follow him. This, this, this is not a complicated theological concept, right? We're to follow Jesus, the God-man, the one who saved us. We're to be his disciples. That's what a disciple is. It's a follower. The only way to do that is by abiding in his word, which is the word of God. Continuing in the word causes believers to grow in knowledge about Jesus Christ, the one who is truth personified. Abiding in his truth, which is absolute truth, brings intimacy with him. I'm always hesitant to use the phrase his truth, because that language is now used. Tell me your truth. No, tell me your truth. What's your truth? What's my truth? But when you're talking about Jesus, it's absolute truth. His truth is the truth. And so the way we abide, the way we follow him is to abide in his truth And that abiding, that continuing in his truth, brings intimacy with him. That intimacy creates freedom, liberation. And he'll talk about the liberation in a few verses. The religious leaders then pounce on Jesus' statement about being made free, about how someone is made free. We get to our new passage this morning in verse 33. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? These words are patently absurd. I mean, absurd on their face. Because for 1,500 years, the Jews had been, the the Israelites had been under political servitude to all the major powers in the region. First to Egypt before the Exodus and then in 722 B.C. to the Assyrians, when the Assyrians 
conquered the northern kingdom. And then in 586 B.C. to the Babylonians when the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom. Then in the 300s when Alexander the Great went east from, from Greece and from Macedonia. Then they were under the political servitude Israel, like all the Middle East, was under the political servitude of the Greeks, or at least that part of the Middle East, in the 300s. And then currently, as the words come out of the Pharisees in their accusation of of Jesus, currently they are under the boot of the Romans. So this statement is patently absurd. In fact, it's so absurd, you have to wonder, is that really what they mean? Do they mean we've never been under political servitude? They could mean we've never been under spiritual servitude. We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been under spiritual servitude to anyone else. If this is what they mean, then it is equally absurd. Because what they're saying is we're spiritually free because of our physical descent from Abraham. Our racial identity as Jews means that we're spiritually good. Whatever their intent, whether it's the absurdity of we've never been slaves, physical slaves, under, under political servitude to other, some other nation, that's ridiculous. And then if their statement is, we're good with God, we're spiritually good because we're descendants of Abraham, our race makes us spiritually good with God, that is equally ridiculous. Jesus ignores their absurdities and cuts to the heart of the matter. He explains the type of slavery that he's talking about. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. This is a powerful, powerful, penetrating statement. God has hardwired each one of us to worship him to serve Him. We know from Genesis chapter 1 that God made us in His image to rule His creation, to serve Him as His regal representatives, as His agents on planet Earth. But in our rebellion, in our rebellious heart, we reject God. We resist serving Him. And this immediately creates another master. There are only two options. There's no gray area. We either serve God or we serve sin. If we don't serve God, then the default automatically is that we serve sin. And of course, the author of sin is the devil himself. And so the grotesque reality is that when we serve sin, we serve the evil one. Think about that. We serve as the agent. This is believers and unbelievers. We serve as the agent of the devil when we are serving sin. When addressing believers in Rome, Paul said this in Romans 6, 16, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? We're going to serve somebody. We're either going to serve God or we're going to serve sin. And if we serve sin, we're serving the author of sin. Lucifer. God's enemy. The, maybe one of the best examples of sin being a slave master and servitude of sin 
in, in modern times is watching pornography. This sin is rampant among believers and unbelievers. It's so common that some of our public schools feel justified in using public tax dollars to purchase books that would promote kids in those schools watching pornography. This sin is like a plague. In pornography, the pornography watcher becomes a slave to his or her sin. I said his or her intentionally. Because it's not just men who watch it. It's also women. And so what happens is the pornography watcher becomes a slave to sexual lust. A slave to fornication of the heart. You know the Greek word that is translated in our English fornication? Anybody know it? It sounds a whole lot like pornography. Porneia. Is the Greek word that's translated fornication. Porneia. It means sexual immorality. That's what fornication is. Fornication is anything that's on the buffet of sexual immorality. And so the, the devil in his devious design and, and, and the brokenness of the human heart has created a huge list of options on the buffet of sexual immorality. The buffet is porneia, the Greek word. And we from that Greek word, we have the word pornography, but people want to kind of, they don't like the word pornography, so they, they shorten it and say, porn, porn. Almost as if it's cool. But what happens is the one who serves sin is a slave to the sin. And so in pornography, the person who watches it is a slave to that person's sexual lust. They're a slave to that person's... The person is a slave to fornication of the heart. And if the person's married, he's or she is a slave to adultery of the heart. Sin and the devil are cruel, callous masters. They promise joy and fulfillment, but instead they deliver oppression and brokenness. God, on the other hand, is a gracious, loving master. You're going to serve one or the other. That's just the way it is. There's no gray area. You serve God or you serve sin. And by serving sin, you serve the devil. This is what Jesus is teaching. It's prickly. It's cold. It's not warm and fuzzy. It's not something we say, yeah, this is great. This is the reality. Because we live in the devil's world. The devil is the ruler of this world, little L. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11? on this concept of God being a loving, gracious master, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for my souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The devil cannot claim something like that. Sin does not do that. Sin, the, 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 the master who is sin, that yoke is brutal. That yoke is oppressive. That yoke is a yoke of brokenness. That yoke is a yoke of vanity. If you are wise, you will let Jesus be your master, not lust. 
not pornography, not fornication, and not any of the other thousands of sin that the human, that the broken human heart in the devil's domain has created. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, you will be free from the cruel master of sin. He's not saying you're going to be sinless. The scripture recognizes the reality that believers continue to sin even after salvation. 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, faithful and righteousness and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. These are, these are not words that, that approve our condition. These are not words that celebrate our sin. Please don't think of them that way. These are not words that say, yay, it's so good that you're a sinner. No, this is just, the scripture is honest. That's who I am. I wish it wasn't true. That's, that, that's me and that's you. Sinners by nature. Even after we're saved, And so here in 1 John, it's a recognition of the reality. And John, the same Apostle John, as we're seeing in John 8, he gives that reality in in 1 John so that we will confess it, 1 John 1, 9, and run from it. But in order for us to confess it, we have to acknowledge we got an issue, right? The way you solve a problem is first you have to say, hey, I got a problem and I need a fix. And, of course, God is the fix for sin as part of the wonder of God. God, who is opposed to sin, who is at war with sin, is the fix for sin. First, in salvation, we're saved from the penalty of sin, which is condemnation. We're saved from the power of sin because the believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It is only by God's power that we, can, that we have the ability to run from sin. And then in the future, in God's eternal kingdom, we will be saved from the presence of sin. If we abide in Jesus' word, meaning we study it, we believe it, we live it, we walk it, then our lives will be characterized more by righteousness than by sin. Not 100% by righteousness, but more by righteousness. In salvation, we are positionally righteous. In other words, when you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life, He gives you Christ's righteousness. He imputes it or transfers it to you, whatever word you want to use. You are now justified, though you do not deserve justification. You are righteous. That is your position. That is your identity. It's not your practice. Because sometimes... To use the old proverb in the book of Proverbs, sometimes, like the dog, we return to our vomit. Or like the pig returns to the mud. It's a real graphic description there in the proverb. But it helps me understand the reality of my brokenness, and I trust that it helps you understand the same thing. And so, we're talking about the distinction between positional righteousness, which is your identity immediately at the moment of faith in Christ, and experiential how you walk. Here's how we should be walking. If you want to graph it, it should look like this. Right? 
this is, you know, down is sin, up is righteousness. So we're falling, we're going up and down, we're going up and down, we're going up and down. But the trajectory is up. That's where we should be going. We're not going to be sinless, but we should sin less. In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says, Everyone who commits sin is the slave to sin. The Greek construction here has the idea of continuing in sin. Continuing in sin. Someone who chooses sin more often than righteousness. It's the idea of a sin pattern. In the context here, it's the sin pattern of unbelief. Jesus tells the, 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 the religious leaders, He tells the Pharisees, I'm God incarnate. Eh. And then he says in another way, I'm God in the flesh. Eh. I'm equal with the Father, to, 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 to use language that, is, that, that more closely matches chapter John. I mean, uh, uh, chapter 8 and the, and the earlier chapters of John. Jesus claims to be equal with the Father. Jesus claims to have perfect intimacy, intimacy with the Father, so much the, so that he is God. Jesus makes all these claims, and, and, the, and the religious leader's response is, no, 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 reject. Reject, reject, reject. And so they are a slave to the sin of unbelief that they're practicing, that they're living in, that they're committing. This is what Jesus is talking about here. The sin of unbelief is their slave master. Keep reading in verse 35 of John chapter 8. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. This is very difficult for our modern brains to, 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 to wrap around this concept. Someone in, in the Roman Greco world would have understood this immediately. Because in the Roman Greco world, think of, think of the house as, as the place of prosperity, the place of security, the place of refuge. And so by birthright, the child of the father of the home is automatically a member of the home automatically a member of the household. And the slave in the Greco-Roman world was in the house, but not a member of the household. And he could be ejected at any time. Outside the household, outside the home, which is the place of refuge and prosperity and security. These religious leaders thought that because we're descendants of Abraham, we're members of God's household. They thought in terms of physical descent, not spiritual descent. Jesus says, you're mistaken. You're wrong. You're like the slave. You're like the slave who will be cast out, and you need me to give you a birthright into the household of God. Verse 36, so if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Man. Fully God, fully man. We've seen at the beginning of our study in the Gospel of John, we've seen those two titles, their messianic titles, Son of God, Son of Man. Son of God, they, well, I should say, they both refer to the deity and to the humanity of Messiah. Both of them do. But Son of God has more of an emphasis on the deity of Messiah, and Son of Man has more of an emphasis on the humanity of Messiah. Jesus is Son of God, Son of Man, he is fully God, fully man. And the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is over God's house. He has authority, in other words, over God's household. He has authority to give someone rights in the household. He has authority to make a slave 
a permanent member of the house. He has authority to give a slave that which a slave does not otherwise have and is not otherwise entitled to, to give them membership in the household of God. Jesus is speaking of spiritual freedom, not political freedom. Spiritual freedom, not political freedom. Christians all over the world for ages who do not live in America, who have never lived in America, who've never enjoyed the political freedoms that we have, they read this text and they understand the spiritual dynamic, the spiritual freedom that Jesus is speaking of. That's what we need to emphasize here and focus on. He's speaking of spiritual freedom. Now that being said, I would be remiss if I failed to mention the connection between spiritual freedom and political freedom. I touched on this a little bit last time. Political freedom is the product of spiritual freedom. Today, our American political freedom is self-destructing. It is imploding. And the reason for this is that we've come to hate that which undergirds our system of political freedom. What is the foundation of the American system of political freedom is the spiritual freedom of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The foundation of our system, American system of political freedom, the foundation, the undergirding, is the spiritual freedom of Christ Jesus. Our founding fathers understood this. Our founding fathers were Christian, and the the few of them that were not at least respected Christianity. As Christians, our founding fathers understood that political freedom is dependent on the spiritual freedom of Christianity. Take Samuel Adams, for example, who was more than just a beer maker. He was a beer maker, but he's more than that. Samuel Adams said this in 1772, the right to freedom is the gift of the Almighty. The rights of the colonists as Christians may be best understood by reading and carefully studying the institution of the great lawgiver and head of the Christian church, Christ, of course, which are to be found clearly written and promulgated in the New Testament. Notice what Adams does. Sam Adams ties the right to freedom to Christ and to the teachings of the New Testament. A few years later, Patrick Henry says this, in a public debate about whether they should declare freedom, independence, from King George. He says, an appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left us. We shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will raise up friends to fight our battles for us. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God, I know not what course others may take, but for me, as for me, give me liberty or give me death. You see, our public schools sanitize this, right? They just give us the last quote, give me liberty or give me death, which is an incredible quote, but they take it out of context because they want to secularize it. Because the Supreme Court has told us that we must teach our kids atheism. Topic for another day. The context of give me liberty or give me death is Christianity. Because Patrick Henry, Patrick Henry appeals to Yahweh Sabaoth to use the language of the Hebrew. 
God, the God of hosts, the God of the armies. Hosts is an old English word for armies. And he appeals here to Almighty God. That's the connection. You see what he, what he does here? He links liberty to Almighty God, the just God, the God of the armies. How about George Washington? A little later, five days after the Declaration of, of Independence was adopted, July 9th, 1776, the general says this, The colonels or commanding officers of each regiment are directed to procure chaplains and see that all inferior officers and soldiers pay them a suitable respect and attend carefully upon religious exercises. When Washington refers to religion, he's not talking about Islam or Buddhism. We'll see in a moment. It's clear he's talking about Christianity. Keep reading. And soldiers pay them a suitable respect and attend carefully upon religious exercises. Then he says what it is. The blessing and protection of heaven are at all times necessary, but especially so in times of public distress and danger. The general hopes and trusts that every officer and man will endeavor so to live and act as becomes a Christian soldier, defending the dearest rights and liberties of his country. Washington connects rights and liberties to Christianity. Can you imagine if a general did this today? They'd take him out and court-martial him on the spot. How dare you instruct soldiers to do something like this? How about John Adams a few years later, our second president? He said this a number of years after the Constitution was ratified. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion, avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry, an old way of saying flashiness or showy, avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Don't tell me our founding fathers were not Christians. You're a liar. And the truth is not in you. Of course our founding fathers were Christians. Every single one? No. But at least those who were not respected Christianity. And they weaved it into the political system that we have because spiritual freedom, which is only found in Christ Jesus, produces political freedom. It's not an accident that we're the freest of every nation. That we started that way, and I guess we still are, even though those freedoms are under serious attack. Adams connected the freedoms of our Constitution to Christianity, and by the term religion, he didn't mean just any old religion. He meant the only true religion, Christianity. When you think of the word religion, because the Scripture uses the word religion, think of the word worship. I mean, John Adams, he's trained in theology. He went to Harvard when Harvard, thought the, when Harvard taught the theology of the Bible. Today, they teach the theology of the evil one. But when Harvard taught the theology of the Bible, many of our founding fathers went there, including John Adams. So when he refers to religion, he's referring to the only true religion, which is Christianity. Think of the term religion as worship. There's either worship of the true God, or there's worship of anything else. Allah, sex, 
money, power, entertainment. The list is long and undistinguished. Those are the two options. True religion, worship of the true God, or false religion, counterfeit religion, counterfeit worship, which is worship of anything else. Sadly, sadly, today in our great insolence, we have come to reject the thinking of our founding fathers. Our culture arrogantly believes that we can have political freedom without spiritual freedom, without the spiritual freedom that Christ offers. We want the fruits of the gospel without the gospel. We want the fruits of the gospel without submitting to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so our culture's definition of freedom is so cut off from God that we say it is freedom for a man to marry a man. Freedom demands it, we say. We say it is freedom for a woman to masquerade as a man and a man to masquerade as a woman. We say it is freedom to create pornography, to make pornography and to distribute it. We say it is freedom to trade your spouse in for a newer model whenever you want to. Just, you know what? I'm done with you, sweetie. I want a newer model. Divorce on demand. We say that those things are freedom. Forever our political system, our laws prohibited all of those things. No longer. No longer. Now we not only tolerate those things, we promote them. We encourage all those things that I've listed. What has changed? What has changed in Americana? What has changed in these United States of America? What's changed is that we have detached political freedom from the spiritual freedom of Christianity. We have untethered freedom from God's Word. And so today, we often define freedom as the right to do whatever you want as long as it doesn't harm someone else. Right? That, that's a very common definition of, of freedom. The right to do whatever you want as long as it doesn't harm someone else. And then we define harm as only what we can see. Because, of course, we live by sight and not by faith. And so we are ignorant and oblivious to the things of God. And we're ignorant and oblivious to the spiritual harm that things, that these things that I have listed cause. We think of harm in, in that definition. Freedom is anything you want to do as long as it doesn't harm someone else. We think of harm as only what we can see. Our culture now lives by sight and not by faith. And so we're blind to the things of God. We're blind to the spiritual harm of those items that I listed and many others. This is the pathetic, godless condition that we find ourselves in. And we find ourselves in this condition because we are disinterested in God and in His Christ. We are disinterested in the spiritual freedom that Christ alone offers. We love our sin. We love our sin. I mean, the word sin, forgive the expression, it's sexy. Right? I mean, it, 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 it's alluring. It's attractive. I mean, it, it, in the time when, when, our, when our nation was established, the word sin kind of had, it had a little bit of, a little recoil when someone heard it. Not today. Because sin is, 
that thing is sinfully sweet. Oh, I love that dessert. It's sinfully, it's full of chocolate. And ice, sin. I mean, we use the word in a totally different way than our founding fathers would have used it. In a totally different way than the scripture uses it. We love our sin. We love our sin so much that our political system is characterized by sin. We've perverted our political freedom so that it is now a system of spiritual bondage. We've perverted our political freedom so it is now a system of, political, of spiritual bondage. And make no mistake, God will punish us for this and we will not like it. Well, on that cheery note, let's get back to our passage in John chapter 8, verse 37, because Jesus is talking about spiritual freedom, not political. But, but, I, but, but I, I thought it was important for you to see the connection between those two. John chapter 8, verse 37 reads like this. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. Here Jesus is developing the concept of fatherhood. His father versus the father of the religious leaders, Father Little F. The religious leaders were descended from Abraham, but they acted nothing like Abraham. They sought to kill the seed of Abraham. In Genesis 22, verse 18, God said, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Jesus is the true seed of Abraham. He is Abraham's descendant, capital D. He is Abraham's descendant above all other of Abraham's descendants. Or to use a phrase from the 930 this morning, He is Abraham's descendant par excellence. Above all other descendants of Abraham is Jesus Christ. In fact, he is called the son of Abraham by the Apostle Matthew in the very first verse of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says, the reason you want to kill me is because my word has no place in you. The phrase has no place is three words in our English language, but one word in the Greek. It's the Greek word koreo, which means to make progress or to reach. Jesus says, my word does not make progress with you. It does not reach you. That's interesting to me. Because the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. It pierces. So which is it? Does the word of God pierce the heart? And Jesus is is God in the flesh, and yet his words do not reach these people. They do not make progress with these religious leaders. How can both be true? How can the word of God pierce the deepest part of us? And yet at the same time, the word of God doesn't pierce them. It doesn't reach them. It doesn't make progress in them. Because the sovereignty of God and the free will of man both coexist. The sovereignty of God and the free will of humanity both coexist. God made us with free will. Or if you prefer the term volition, I think free will is a better term because the word will is used many times in the scripture. Both exist. God doesn't stick his finger in your brain and and, and flick the light switch on, flick the switch on, positive versus negative. 
lights on, lights off. He doesn't do that. He gives you free will, the ability to choose for him or against him. But make no mistake, the Word of God will not be ignored. The Word of God will not be ignored. Not the living Word, not the written Word. And so the Word of God is so powerful that it always produces a response, either positive or negative. They hear Jesus' words, which are the words of the Father, and their response is, you must die. Because they seek to kill the messenger of the Father, the messenger himself being God the Son. The religious leaders seek to murder Jesus because they follow their spiritual Father. Jesus will identify their spiritual father shortly. Keep reading in verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. They insist that their lineage from Abraham makes them just like Abraham. Remember, Abraham is called the friend of God. And they think because we're descendants, we're, we're biologically descended from Abraham. Because we're, we're, we're racially descended from Abraham, they think that they are the friends of God. Jesus says, no, you are nothing like Abraham. Jesus is making a distinction here between physical descent and spiritual descent. The spiritual descendants of Abraham follow Abraham's pattern of faith. Whether those descendants are racially descended from Abraham or not, the African man, the Asian man, the Germanic man, the Hispanic man, are not Semitic. I mean, I'm speaking in broad categories here. I realize the, the Israelites have now all around the planet. But let's, let's say the African man or the Germanic man who follows the spiritual pattern of faith of Abraham is a descendant of Abraham. This is, what, this is the distinction that Jesus is making. Even though the Germanic or African or Asian man is not a physical descendant of Abraham, he nonetheless follows the spiritual pattern, and he is therefore a spiritual descendant of Abraham. Abraham believed God and trusted the truth of his word, and this is what made Abraham the friend of God. James 2, verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis 15, 6. And he was called the friend of God. Unlike Abraham, these religious leaders reject God's word. They hate God incarnate, so much so that they want to kill him. They are by no means the friends of God. Keep reading in verse 41. You are doing the deeds of your father. Their antagonism, their opposition towards Jesus, betrays who their spiritual father is. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father. God, this is, this is an insult. This is slander. Since Jesus was born of a virgin birth, there was a rumor. 
the rumor was that Mary had relations with a soldier before she was married to Joseph. So as we've studied in the past, there's a long betrothal period in, in, in ancient times. So you'd be engaged, and you'd be engaged at least for nine months. Because the betrothal period was a way, usually it's a year, was, was a way to test faithfulness. <clears throat> it was a way to test the faithfulness of, th- this is the way they designed it, it was a way to test the faithfulness of the lady. And so if a lady showed up pregnant during the one-year betrothal period, rut row, we, we, we got a problem here. There's an issue here. Well, Mary showed up pregnant during the betrothal period. And Mary comes to Joseph and says, you know, Joseph's going to cast her out. And, and the angel says, the angel tells Joseph, no, she's pregnant. She's been made pregnant by God. God has caused her to be pregnant because she is going to bear the child who is the Christ. Well, if you didn't believe in the virgin birth and you're a skeptic in ancient times, you say, Mary was unfaithful. And Joseph, because for whatever reason, Joseph decided to marry her anyway. This is the rumor that was, that was there. It's recorded in one of the early church fathers. Origen records the rumor that Mary had relations with a soldier. And the product of that, those relations was Jesus. And so what the, what the Pharisees are saying is, you know, if we, if we put it in our vernacular, I know who my daddy is, not you. This, this is the, the slander, the accusation <clears throat> that his mother was an adulterer and that he is the product of fornication, that he's born of fornication. Jesus ignores their slander and cuts to the quick of it. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, <clears throat> excuse me, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. In a general sense, every human being is the child of God, having been created by God. But in the truer, deeper, spiritual sense, only those who have a relationship with the Father through faith in the Son, through faith in Jesus, are God's spiritual children. The religious leaders hate the Father, and therefore they hate the Son who proceeded from the Father. Verse 43 Why do you not understand what I am saying, Jesus says? It is because you cannot hear my word. Their unbelief made them spiritually blind and spiritually deaf. Their problem, just like ours in the year 2023, is that they do not fear God. They do not fear God. When you're prideful, you don't fear God. There's no place in your heart to... The the, the phrase, the fear of God doesn't mean you're in the corner cowering before God. It means with respect to God. Wide open mouth, kind of, you don't care, you look like a dummy. With respect to God. Awe, with respect to God. Reverential respect with respect to God. That's what the fear of God means. And so, if I'm very impressive in my own mind, I've got no room to be impressed by God. I've got no room in my heart to be in 
reverential awe of God because I'm in reverential awe of me, of the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. This is why someone doesn't fear God, because instead they're prideful. Look at the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Please turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 5. Jeremiah 5, verse 21. Here we see this concept of blindness. Jeremiah 5.21 Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people. Let's start with verse 20. Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying... Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Do you not fear me, declares Yahweh? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree so it cannot cross over it. Though the the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. What God is saying there is, I am the creator. I've created even the oceans with my great, vast, impressive power. But my people are blind. They're stubborn and rebellious, and they turn aside from fearing me, from respecting me. Keep reading in verse 24. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear Yahweh, our God, who gives rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Verse 25, your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have withheld good from you. Verse 26, for wicked men are found among my people. They watch like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch them. Like a cage full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore they have become great and rich. They are fat. They are sleek. They also excel in deeds of wickedness. They do not plead the cause. They caught the cause of the orphan that they may may prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the poor. Shall I not punish these people, declares Yahweh. On a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? There are consequences. There are consequences for rejecting God. There are consequences for refusal to fear God. And part of the consequence is blindness. Though they have eyes, they cannot see. And though they have ears, they cannot hear. Turn back to John chapter 8. The religious leaders fit this description of the prophet Jeremiah, where they have eyes but do not see and ears but do not hear. They do not fear God because they follow the pattern of the evil one. Their spiritual father is none other than Satan himself. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
I guess Jesus has never heard of the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. I'm not promoting jerks for, jerks for Jesus. No, we've we got, we got plenty of jerks for Jesus. I'm not, I'm not saying that we should be rude, but I'm saying we should be honest. We should speak the truth in love, but we should speak it. And here Jesus speaks the truth. They are following the pattern of the devil himself. That's why he says, you are the father, you are of your father the devil. Remember in Genesis 3.15, Immediately after the fall, immediately after Adam and Eve have sinned, and Adam has handed over the right to rule to the devil. Because when Adam sinned, he handed over rulership of this world to the devil. What does God do immediately? Immediately he promises another Adam, a second Adam, the last Adam in Genesis 3.15. And he says... He speaks of the seed, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. And he says, the seed of the woman will crush you on the head. He's speaking to the serpent. And there will be enmity between your seed and her seed. Who's the seed of the woman? Jesus, right? There's no Joseph's seed involved in the conception of Jesus. It's only the woman's, it's only Mary's seed. Jesus is the seed of the woman. But in Genesis 3.15, God prophesied that there would be enmity, conflict, opposition, warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman is Jesus, we know that, and everyone who's aligned with Jesus by faith, identified by Jesus by faith. In Him, by faith. Who's the seed of the serpent? It's not the devil. I mean, the devil's the serpent. We know that the serpent is the devil from, from the book of Revelation, where he's described as the serpent of old. So we, we know the serpent is the devil, but who's the seed of the serpent? Well, we see it right here in verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. The seed of the serpent that, G, that God spoke of in Genesis 3.15 is everyone who is an unbeliever. Everyone who is, aligned, who is aligned against God because they've rejected Christ and therefore they are aligned with the devil. And so here you see the seed of the serpent at enmity with the seed of the woman. Because the seed of the serpent seeks to kill the seed of the woman. And in fact, the seed of the woman will allow the seed of the serpent to kill him. And then he will be raised from the dead. And what does the other part of Genesis 3.15 say? He will bruise you on the head, and you will bruise him on the heel. The seed of the serpent kills Jesus, which is a bruise on the heel, on the heel, because three days later he will be raised from the dead. And his work on the cross is a headshot, to use a hunting term, is a headshot on the devil. And his victory over the devil, because when you hit someone on the head, it's lights out. They're done. That headshot will be displayed in the book of Revelation. At some point in the future, we will study the book of Revelation. Revelation 19, when it's on display, Jesus' victory over the devil. Right? What happens? 
in, in Revelation 19 and Revelation 20, first the devil is cast into the pit for a thousand years. Jesus rules for a thousand years. The seed of the woman rules. The descendant of, Abra- of Abraham rules. The king rules. Then you get to the end of Revelation 20, and the devil is once and for all vanquished. But this time he's vanquished to his destiny, the destiny that was created in eternity past when he rebelled against God. The lake of fire. End of Revelation 20 is the display of the headshot when the devil is cast into the lake of fire as well as all who follow the devil, the seed of the serpent. All who are unbelievers. Also here in this verse, we see Jesus saying that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. What does he mean by that? A murderer from the beginning. Remember in Genesis 3? Just turn over there. Let's, I keep referring to Genesis 3. Let's, let's just look at it. Genesis 3. Remember Genesis 1 and 2 are, are, are just this beautiful description of creation. And God says, it is good, 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 it is good. It is tomot. It is very good. And then we get to Genesis 3, and we have a problem. Genesis 3 is very different than Genesis 1 and 2. Look at Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. He reverses the language. He just inverts it. He says the exact opposite of what God had earlier said. He's saying, you can't trust God. He's just not, he's not trustworthy. I mean, that's what the devil is essentially, what the serpent is saying by challenging the truthfulness of God. Keep reading in verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Oh, now that's appealing. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good, for, was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Boom, 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 boom. Quick succession. Game over. Finished. Finished. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. The first thing they have to do, I've got to cover up. A second ago, they were naked and not ashamed. And a second later, this perfect intimacy between husband and wife, broken. You can't see me. They're ashamed because sin has changed them immediately. Immediately. Keep reading. Verse 9. Verse 8, excuse me. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? God knows. But God is, is giving Adam an opportunity, an opportunity to recognize his wrongdoing, to confess. Verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the tree, gave from the tree, and I ate. <laughs> it's not my fault, God. It's that woman. No, it's actually your fault, God, because you gave me the woman. Talk about a leader. Verse 11. Excuse me. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle. And more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. There's the verse. And I will put enmity between you, the devil, and the, and, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he will bruise, bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is what we just described. And then the text goes on and on. How is the devil a murderer from the beginning? He's a murderer from the beginning because Adam and Eve died. They lived in perfect, perfect environment in the Garden of Eden. And God would visit them in the Garden of Eden, naked and not ashamed. Perfect unity between the two of them, perfect unity between them and God. And they could have lived there forever. God said, don't eat from that tree, because in the day you eat from that tree, you will die. The devil comes in and says, ah, you're not going to die when you eat from that tree. He orchestrated their deaths. They died immediately spiritually. That's why they had to cover up, because something had changed immediately. They died immediately spiritually, and that ultimately led to their physical death. Guess what? You die compliments of the devil. Your body is fading away, compliments of the devil. When you look at your high school picture and you look at a picture of yourself today and you say, eh, is that the same person? Compliments of the devil. You're wasting away, as am I. Compliments of the devil. Now, we can't blame him entirely. I mean, don't, 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 we shouldn't be like Adam. Hey, it's, their, it's our fault, too. I mean, we're sinners, to be sure, we make our own sinful choices. But this is what Jesus means when he says he was a murderer from the beginning. That was the devil's intent. To kill them. To kill God's image bearers. And he achieved it. This is why the second Adam, or the last Adam, is needed to come to undo the death that the first Adam created. To undo the sin that the first Adam injected into the human race. The devil does not stand in the truth, Jesus says in John 8, 44, because the truth, there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's who the devil is. You take the devil and the devil's world and the devil's system, which is a whole system, to use, to use Lewis Berry Chafer's old Phrase the cosmos diabolicus, the, the devil's world, the devil's world system, which is layers of evil and evil on top and top and top, and we see it in our culture. 
You take those things lightly. You ignore those things at your great, great danger. We should not. We must not ignore those things. I'm not saying we should, we should you know, live a life in paranoia. We need, we need to live a life in God's ways, in God's word, walking in his word, studying his word, abiding in his truth. And then that gives you courage to live in a world that is hostile to God and to God's people. Now, maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You're here without hope, without Christ, and without eternal life. Or maybe you're that way and you're watching on the, on the Internet or will in the future. We want you to know that God loves you, that God loves you though you are his enemy. We are all the enemies of God before we come to Christ. That's who we are by nature, rebels, just like Adam. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. Not the way Adam was created. Adam was created sinless. Jesus was born the way Adam was created. Jesus was born sinless the way Adam was created sinless. Jesus lived a sinless life. That's why he was qualified to pay for our sins. We're not qualified to pay for our own sins because we're sinners. We needed a qualified, sinless substitute, the Lamb of God, without spot and without blemish, to pay for our sins. This is why Jesus went to the cross, fully God, fully man, and paid for the sins of the world. And by faith alone, in Jesus alone, we stop being a member of the devil's domain of darkness, which is where we all are before we come to Christ. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to suck up to you. I'm just... I'm just I'm telling you what's in the text. We're all members of the devil's domain of darkness, servants of the evil one, whether we know it or not, or we don't, before we come to Christ. And it is only from the largesse of his love that he plucks us off of the death train. From the majesty of his great, great love and compassion and mercy does he say, I love you, and let me show you how I love you. I'm coming. I'm not going to send some angel from some unknown part of the universe to do this work. This is my work, because you're made in my image, and I'm going to display to you. That's John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Wow, that's, that's the way Jesus says it. Wow, he loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him will not perish and have everlasting life. If you refuse to believe in Christ, then you will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Let me say that again. If you refuse to believe in Christ, you will spend eternity in the lake of fire, the place that Jesus described as weeping, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is meek and gentle, to be sure, but he is also the judge, the judge, and he will judge humanity. We must not take Jesus lightly. We must trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins and the receiving of eternal life. I'm available afterwards if you'd like to visit. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have recorded it for us all of these many centuries ago. We thank you that we may be edified by it and transformed by it. And we thank you that you sent your son to pay for our sins, to be our access to you and to your heaven and to your kingdom. We praise you for all these things. We also thank you for the food that we're about to eat and the 
meal, and we thank you for those who worked to prepare it, and we ask that you make it good for us. We pray these things in the name of His Majesty, the Lord Jesus Christ.